Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Now it's on. (laughs) Sorry about that. So, uh, really cool. Kelly and I did not coordinate verses and the, the talk of transformation and being conformed to the image of God. So that's just really cool how that all worked out. Uh, my name is Ken Cantrell. Uh, I am not the normal preacher. Our lead pastor and teaching pastor, Jeff, is out today. Uh, I am one of the elders here. I'm not currently on the elder body, but if there's anything I can do for you, uh, feel free to reach out. Jeff has been in a sermon series in Romans. It has been a fantastic series in Romans, and so if you haven't uh, heard any of that, I'd recommend, even if you have, uh, listen in next week, be back as Jeff continues the sermon in Romans. Uh, And that's actually what we're going to preach on today. I'm just going to pick up where he left off in Romans, and we're going to jump right into it. So we're in Romans chapter 12, just two verses, verses 1 and 2, and these verses are a bridge between chapters 1 through 11 and then the rest of the chapter. So these just two little verses connect the rest of the book. Somewhere, and actually I missed his sermon on it, in like 6, 7, 8 in there somewhere, Jeff talked a little bit about imperatives and indicatives. So indicatives tell you who you are. They describe the world, they describe your state. In the context of the Bible, they talk about who we were before Christ, if you're a believer, who you are now, what he's done. That's chapters 1 through 11. So 1 through 11 just lays out who we are, if you're a believer, in Christ and how we got there. And then the rest of this chapter, basically, or the rest of the book, basically after verse 2 here, tells you, now what? What do you do in the light of that? So they're what we call the imperatives, which is basically the commands or the precepts or words that get used sometimes. So there's only two verses that we're going to look at. I think there's five, six sermons, I think thought about preaching out of these two verses, and you don't want five or six uh, sermons today. So I think there's a really good likelihood that I'm going to touch on something, and you're going to think, ooh, I I wish he'd slow down. I wish he'd spent just a little bit more time there. If that's true, catch me after. I would love to talk more. I hate mornings. I'll even get up and have breakfast with you if you want to talk about more of it. So what am I going to talk about? What we are going to talk about today is the will of God, and I'm going to do that with three big questions a what question, a how question, and a why question. The way I'm going to do this is I'm going to start at the end of the verses, and I'm going to work my way back piece by piece. So the what question begins in the verse itself that says, what is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? What is the will of God? Before I dive too deep into that, even that tiny little bit has commentators a little confused because they ask the question, are good and acceptable and perfect adjectives describing the will of God or are they nouns? And as weird as it is, they don't really know for sure. The consensus seems to be that they're nouns. So what's really being said here is, what is the will of God? It is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What is good and acceptable and perfect? It is the will of God. So you kind of have the same thing just stated twice. That phrase, the will of God, boy, that is one of those where you can have lots of sermons because it can mean different things in different places in the Bible. Some of them have lots of implications. 
there are two main ways that that phrase, the will of God, gets used in the Bible. The first one is the sovereign will of God. And so the sovereign will of God is also called his secret will. It's also called his, I think it's decretive will. It might be decorative will. I don't know how you say it for sure. But that refers to God's plan for all creation across all time, of which we only get little glimpses here and there. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. And I'll tell you how I know that in just a minute. The other way, a form of God's will, is God's revealed will. It's also called his preceptive will. It comes from the word precepts. Precepts means commands or things you're supposed to do. We're just going to call that the stuff that God has declared is right and good for us to do. That's what Paul is talking about here. And the reason we know that is because right after this, that's what he does, is he gives us lots of instructions for how to live. So here's a question. You don't have to answer it, but do you want to know what the will of God is? Do you want to know what is good and acceptable and perfect, what he desires of you in this world? I suspect so, which is good because that's what comes after this for a while. For the rest of Romans, a lot of, or most of it, Paul's going to spend his time describing this. He's going to start with the church, and then he's going to move off into communities and talk about one-on-one relationships, and then he's finally going to end with how we interact with our government. So we're going to have a lot of sermons, I think, for the, the next few months looking at those, but just to give you a preview of what's coming. Do you want to know what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect? then it is. And so uh, these will have the verse references at the end. I'm not going to read those when I read them out. The will of God is to live in humility and not think more of yourself than you should. To use your gifts, but also don't think too much of them, nor too little of them. Abhor what is evil. Rejoice in hope. Endure in suffering. Persist in prayer. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all people. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Be subject to the governing authorities and pay your taxes. Love your neighbor. Live decently, as in the daytime. And what this means is live in a way that if people saw you, you would be okay with it. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in discord and jealousy. Avoid temptation. The way it says it is, make no provision for the flesh to arouse its desires. Bear with weaker brothers. Don't put stumbling blocks in front of them. Show love. Receive one another in hospitality. As you can see, there's lots of places where the Bible is pretty clear about how to live and what following God looks like. I think these are great. I think we're going to have some really good sermons as we look into these and figure out like exactly what do they mean for us. But How do you answer questions like, should I take this job? Who should I marry? Should I buy this car? Because even if you pick up all the additional instructions that I skipped in Romans, and then you add in Ephesians, and you add in Colossians, and the rest of the New Testament, questions like, should I take this job? They're just never answered explicitly. In fact, it feels like questions like those are really only answered in hindsight, sometimes more than they are in foresight. And that doesn't help you make decisions. So I, I hesitated to share this story, uh, but I shared it in a dry run and somebody thought it might help. So uh, when I bought my Honda Fit back in 2011, I wanted a much nicer car. I wanted leather, 
I'd had a sunroof before. I wanted a sunroof. I wanted something that was going to be a bit zippier, which would be everything than a Honda Fit. I'd had a truck, and I kind of wanted a truck. But cars are expensive now. They were expensive then. And for me, then, I was convicted that what I wanted was selfish because it was just for me. It was going to be my car. And I just couldn't justify spending that kind of money, even though we had it, on what I saw for me as a selfish choice. So I bought the Fit. And then much of the overflow that I'd been thinking about spending, I gave to a friend. Now, my friend hadn't asked me for money. I didn't know explicitly that they needed money. But he was a youth minister. They don't make anything. And I knew that finances were always tight. I gave him the money, and he looked at me in shock. Because they had terrible, maybe no health insurance. I don't really know where they were there. He had just found out he needed to have emergency foot surgery. And the money I gave him was what they needed for their foot surgery. Now, in hindsight, I look back at that and I say, this is why I was convicted. And that's why I was led to do this. Now, I want to be real clear. This is not to say that buying a nice car is a wrong thing to do and it's selfish. Um, that's not what happened four years later when I bought a brand new Toyota Sienna for my wife to haul the kids back and forth to Arkansas with. Right? My, my point is, I didn't know what was going to happen when I made my decision. I didn't have a voice from God. I didn't have scripture that said, Kenneth, thou shalt buy a Honda Fit, which would have been cool. Uh, and frankly, I didn't even have a lot of peace about the decision because I really wanted a nicer car. So how do you know the will of God in situations like that to make the right choice? So when I teach the Introduction to Theology course, we discuss a model for how to read the Bible and understand it. And this is basically the same model that the women who are doing the Romans Bible study are using right now. And it looks like this. It says, when you read the Bible, you begin with asking, what did it mean then? For the original author and the original audience, how did they interpret it? Why, who wrote it? Why did they write it? Who was it written to? What was the context of the time? How would it have been read and interpreted then? And then, because it is God's Word and not just any regular book, you look to see if there is a timeless godly principle that you can extract from that, that transcends all cultures, all people, all contexts. And then you ask the question, can, how do I apply that to me? Not what does it mean to me, because it has a meaning, but how do I apply that to me? So we spend a lot of time in the Introduction to Theology class, and so, to be clear, this sermon is not an ad for the intro class, but if you've never had the Introduction to Theology class and you want to take it, it's fantastic. Catch me. I would love to run it again if we can get enough people or to do the rest of them if you've had that and you want more. But we spend some time there talking about how people just mess this thing up. Like they start with, here's what I want to do. I wonder how I could justify that in making some principle. And then you go proof texting in the Bible to find something that says it's okay. Right? That's wrong. But if you take this process right, what did it mean then? What's the timeless principle? How does it apply to me? It's a fantastic model. Except, how did you do that? Like, how do you actually read the Bible and extract the right principle, like an actual godly principle and not just the one you want? Before I answer that, I want to step back because I think we're going to take these verses and kind of walk through them in a backwards way because this question is even really a little harder. So this is why I quoted from the Net Translation. It's a little more clear here. It says, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God. 
Now, what this is not saying is it is your job to stand as the judge above God, look at the Word, and say, good job, God. I agree. That's a, that's a good saying. We'll do that one. That's not what test and approve means. What it means is they're supposed to be part of our heart and our soul that when we read the Word of God, screams, yes, yes, that's it. That's what I want. That's what I love. That's who you are. And we're supposed to approve it from deep down inside. God's desire is not for us just to know the words and the ideas of Scripture, but to long for them and hunger for them. David said back in Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Way back in 1734, there was a preacher named Jonathan Edwards who was preaching on this. He used the idea of honey. He said, basically, there's a really big difference between somebody describing how good honey is and how sweet it is, and keep in mind, like, this is before the wide advent of sugar and so forth, and tasting honey. I think the same thing could be true for Kevin Tyndale's amazing smoked bacon last week. Anybody can tell you how good it is, but that was totally different than tasting it. We're supposed to be able to taste the Word of God and then hunger for it. So, I'm going to ask again. Assuming we know Scripture, which I'm going to come back to in a minute, How do you move from a place of the intellectual knowledge of the will of God, as expressed in specific cases in the Bible, to a heart's desire to know it, to live it, to embrace it, to reflect it, and to be able to see and apply all of its principles in every part of your life? Because that's what we want, right? So that's my second question. First was a what? What is the will of God? Here's a second question. How? How do you know the will of God? Thankfully, Paul tells us, so we'll back up a little bit more. He says, do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God. He says we must be transformed by a renewing of our mind in order to test and approve what is the will of God. Now, that word conformed in Greek is actually the word that we get our word schematic from. So it really refers to like a plan or a framework. But it can also, like in English, we think of it in terms of like molds and models and being conformed. So I brought this. You probably aren't going to be able to see these very well. So I have these silicone molds. um, And this is a smaller version of what I stuffed in it. So I do some 3D printing and I do some bad 3D printing. I have all sorts of leftover filament from mistakes. So what I do is uh, I melt down the filament because I have my own little private little easy-bake oven. So I stuff the filament in here. I heat it up. It melts down. And then you peel off the silicone, and you get these really ugly-looking skulls, which is pretty neat, solid plastic. Here's the question. What mold are you being fit into? If you're being melted down and stuffed into a mold and then somebody pulled off that silicone mold, what would you look like as believers of Jesus? Do we look like the rest of the world that doesn't follow Jesus or do we look like Him? Do you get that? If you are a follower of Jesus, you are not supposed to look like non-believers. There's supposed to be a fundamental difference in our value system. Now, This is another one of those places that we could preach a whole sermon, many sermons, there's books written on this, because it creates all sorts of questions like, what does this mean? Like, should we create Christian communes? uh, This was a phrase when I was growing up, we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't go go with the girls that do. 
Does it mean you avoid dancing and gambling, anything that even remotely looks like a game of chance? Like back in the 80s and 90s, does it mean you burn all your records or your CDs or your cassettes? I can't get into all that here. Like I said, that's a bunch of sermons. So I'm going to summarize it with this. There's a pattern, a framework, a schematic to this world, and we are not supposed to fit into it. I think that's going to mean different things to different people in different times. But I also think it's really important that Jesus didn't pray that his disciples would be taken out of the world, but they would be protected in it. A little side note. Sometimes when Christians start talking about being different and distinct from the world, there's this air of arrogance that creeps in, as if there's something better about Christian followers. So let's be clear. Any follower of Jesus is a follower of Jesus, despite who they are and not because of it. There is absolutely no place in Christianity for arrogance or elitism. We are supposed to look different, yes, because we're supposed to look like Jesus. But if we do, that's all grace. All right, so what is Paul talking about? He says, don't be conformed, and then he says, transformation and this renewal of the mind. What is he saying? In Bible words, this is what we talk about when we talk about sanctification. It's that process that begins with justification, when you are made right with God, declared right, and ends in glorification, when you are with Him forever. Between those two times, you are promised that you're going to become more and more like Him. Now, one of the, one of the things I find frustrating about the Christian life is how often there are two ideas that seem to be in tension with one another. Because in one sense, this is what's happening here. This has already happened. And we preach this all the time here at Oak City. If anyone is in Christ, bam! That word's not there, but we say it every time, right? If anyone is in Christ, bam! He is a new creation. Right then. It happened right then. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The moment you come to faith in Christ, you are made new. You are transformed. That's a fact. You were initially dead, not sick, and were made alive. You were a slave to sin and became a slave to righteousness. You were incapable of discerning spiritual things, and your eyes were open to the glories of God. And yet, that same Paul who said, bam, made new, is the same one who says, you have to be renewed. It's like, <laughs> is he confused? How do you make sense of these two things? So here's how I think of it. At conversion, we are given a new nature. We are made new. And we're given this promise that someday that new nature is going to be made perfect. But between now and then, there's a lot of stuff we have to unlearn and a lot of spiritual maturity that's going to take place. And that's where this daily transformation and renewal come in. The how question really has two parts. Because the second part then is, how are you transformed and renewed? Okay, remember why I'm asking this question. If to know the will of God, we must be transformed and renewed, how are you transformed and renewed? The first thing is to know that in Greek, those two words are in an active sense, not a passive sense. They're, they're in an ongoing sort of thing. This is going to be a process. And as you'll see in the next few points, it's a process that, at least in part, involves us. And from experience and study, 
I will tell you this is not a perfect upwards trajectory. There are going to be days where you feel that transformation is taking place, and then there's going to be days or even seasons where you don't. That's normal. But you should be able to look back at your spiritual journey and see a path of maturity. Now remember, spiritual transformation leads to the ability to discern the will of God, so we want to be transformed. Thankfully, Scripture tells us a lot about how to be transformed. So we're going to look at four ways that Scripture says to be transformed. The first one is knowledge. Now, I, I have a tendency towards the intellectual side of our faith, so I like verses like this. So this is one that really resonates with me. It says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Right? You've already put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Our new self is being renewed in knowledge. In knowledge of what? This is the Romans 1 through 11, that in knowledge of who we are, what's been done for us, how good God is. Now, this, this might be the tensest part of the sermon because um, I think this is really important because I think we're lazy. Now, making sure my pronoun there, we, not you, I think we're lazy because we complain that we aren't comfortable speaking with non-believers because we don't know Scripture very well. But then we spend like less than a tenth, and I think I'm being incredibly generous, of our time studying God's Word as we do on social media or TV or Xbox or PlayStation or podcast or whatever it happens to be. Home group times are filled with, I think, and I feel moments instead of Scripture says moments. And I think we should be ashamed of that. After all, even Jesus, when He was tempted by the devil in the desert, He didn't reply with, well, I feel, devil, that... Mm. He replied by quoting Scripture and quoting it in context. In other parts of our lives, we know it's true that if you want to get good at something, you have to put in time and effort. For example, you don't just wake up, somebody, I'll say this, I think there may have actually been some weird medical cases where somebody did this after head injuries, but just ignore those, okay? You don't just wake up one morning able to speak a foreign language, right? It takes time and effort and a long time of sounding really silly. I was reading a research paper this week to prep for the sermon. I came across this phrase. We utilize one labeled dialogue randomly sampled from the valid set to prompt the memory management and response generator. I suspect that is just nonsense to you, to almost all of you. And that's because you're not, I suspect, and I'm not, an expert in artificial intelligence and machine learning and how to do reinforcement memory training for them and so forth. Right? It's just, it's gibberish. Should I expect you to make sense of that? No, right? Because we know if we do not study a topic, it isn't going to magically pop into our head. And yet, somehow, we think Scripture is different. And that's just silly. But here's the kicker, right? Is this really the answer to spiritual growth? Just study more. If you studied enough is the answer to every question and situation that you could come across in life contained explicitly in the Bible. 
Will it tell you somewhere who to marry? Nope. It's not. It's still there. Not there. You read it all you want. It's still never going to say, you should marry so-and-so. Is it contained somewhere in a principle in the Bible? Eh, Probably yes, actually. But could you recognize it? Like if you just had all the head knowledge, could you recognize it? And I say no. I I don't think we could. The Bible is absolutely clear that knowledge is part of it. And I think it's a part that as an American culture, we just kind of ignore. But it's only part, and I think it's a little part. So I said there were three parts, or four parts of spiritual transformation. We still have three to go, so what's the rest? Part two. I didn't really know how to label this. I'm going to call it time, or focus, or energy, or attention. It comes from these two verses. Both are from 2 Corinthians. The first one is, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Second verse, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What's, what's he trying to say? I think what Paul is trying to say is that when we focus our hearts and our minds on Christ, we become more like Him. When we behold the glory of God, we are transformed into someone who is more like Him. But I think that idea is broader than just that, because I think it goes in reverse. I think, like these molds, that we are shaped by where we put our time and our attention. So I've said this before from the, when I was preaching. I've heard that you become the average of your five best friends. Just ponder that for a moment. You become the average of your five best friends. Is that a good thing for the Christian life or a bad thing? How about for your kids and their friends? Now, if you are a man over the age of 30, you might be thinking, <laughs> he has no idea what he's talking about. I don't even have five friends. Um, but you do. They just not, might not be real, okay? Netflix, Hulu, ESPN, podcast, Facebook, TikTok, video games, right? The places that you're putting your time and your energy into, those are your friends. And our culture is a culture that says, right, sex sells. It's all about sex. It's all about getting stuff. It's all about you know, putting somebody else down to move forward, right? What is the messages being poured into by your friends? Who are you spending time with? Who are you looking to and being shaped by? Is it Christ and His followers or the world? Because if we want transformation, we're told we must focus our attention on Him. There's two more. A third way would be prayer. And I could probably put this third one and the fourth one together because I think they go super close together. David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. So David, a man after God's own heart, he knew that transformation and renewal wasn't in his hands. And so he turned to God. That's why I said that it's active and yet it's not, right? This is our model, to turn to God in prayer and beg Him, to beseech Him 
to transform us to be more like Him. The reason I said this could go with the next one is because we do that in trust. Philippians verses 1 through 6 says, or chapter 1 verse 6, I am sure of this. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God began our transformation, and he will complete it, and we can trust that. So as we pray, we pray not just begging God to do something we hope he'll do, but to ask him to do something we know he will do because he's promised it. So how are you conformed to the image of God? How are you transformed? Through knowledge, where we put our time and our energy and our focus, through prayer and through trust. Let's step back again. Why are we going through transformation and renewal? Because it's through that that we can test and discern the will of God. So to ask this question yet again, how do you know who to marry or what job to take? Here is the really frustrating answer. It's not always going to be clear. It's just not. There are some really clear instructions in the Bible on how to act and react, but most of the Christian life is not about memorizing the right answer. It's about becoming more and more like Christ so that you know and you can intuit, is the best word I can find, the right answer, and you can support that through this right, proper use of Scripture. Now, I will be clear. I hate answers like that. That is not the answer I want. I want to know. I want to be able to turn to page 642 and have it say, Ken, do this by the fit, right? I don't want to wait, and I don't want to mature, and I don't want to have to trust that others who are more spiritually mature than me might have input that I should listen to. But church, this is the truth. This is how the church works. So finally, we come to this question, the why question. Why do we even care what the will of God is? Now, I was real careful because I thought at one point about like doing a survey and asking you at the beginning, do you want to know the will of God and why? And I didn't ask because I was afraid I would get an answer that sounded like this. Because this is the way to live a better life. Life is easier when you do what God wants. That is not always true. Jesus flat told his followers, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to set a son against his father. I am going to create discord. It's likely. Yeah, let's start with this. It's possible that you may lose your job or you may lose a friendship because you choose to take a stand for what you know is right. I think it's likely that in places in your life, following God is going to create discord. So you might think, stinking preacher people, they take everything too literal. That's not what I mean. What I mean is following God is best for me in the long run. Well, that's true, actually. But that's not how Paul talks about it. And I don't think that's how the Bible talks about it on the whole at all. Because fundamentally, that makes following God a selfish thing. It says, I do this because it's me. It's all about me. This big story of the world, it's about me. And that's not how the Bible presents it. So how does Paul talk about it? Why does he say, follow the will of God? Let's go all the way back then to the beginning of chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, and what I wanted to do, 
I wanted to preach a 40-minute sermon on therefore and be glad my wife vetoed it. But that's what I wanted because that might be the most important word, I think, in all of, in all of the book, the whole book of Romans. Because it says that everything that comes after is predicated on 1 through 11, who we are, what God has done, how great He is, right, and how that has changed the world. But that's all we'll say there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice or reasonable service, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he tells us what worship is. And when he tells us what worship is, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, he says our natural response, the most logical thing in the world to recognizing the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the compassion, the power and the authority, I am going to preach 1 through 11, and the might and the majesty and the justice and, like, and the inscrutableness of God, the most natural response is to worship Him. And we worship Him by giving Him every aspect of our life. We conform our life to His image and live out His desire for us. So apparently, I preached on worship, and I preached on this verse in June of 2021, and then I preached on worship again in June of 2022. Seems to be a theme. But when I did this in June of 21, I pointed out that worship is not confined to singing. Worship is not about Sundays. Worship is a whole body, a whole life, all-encompassing event. We're meant to present our bodies, which are holy, which are acceptable, because God made them so. When we were dead, He made us alive. He made us acceptable. We're meant to take those and give them to Him. So I, I had a coworker who asked me why I tithe. I shared this a, maybe a couple months ago when we were talking about tithing. But I had a coworker who asked me about why I tithe. And what he said was, why do you give your money to the church? What I told him was, you and I look at this completely different. We, you asked even the wrong question as far as I'm concerned, because I don't give my money to the church. I don't have money. I'm a steward. God has money, and He's been incredibly gracious to give me a good bit of it to hold and to, to take care of, and He says, that stuff that's mine, give it back to me. And so that's what I do, and that's why I tithe. Why do I share that? Because that's what worship is, just, not just with money, but with our whole life. They're His. He redeemed them. Worship is seeing and loving His will and doing our best to live it out through this life of constant renewal and transformation. And this is super important, not to gain His favor. We don't do these things to be right with God, but as a response to His favor. And it all follows from that, therefore. That's the why. That's why we worship and why we follow the will of God. So, why seek God's will? To worship Him more fully. How do you recognize God's will? Through transformation and renewal. Now, at the end, I also want to stress this. Worshiping, transformation, renewal, don't look at this as a duty or a responsibility. Look at this as an opportunity and a reality. I shared this before, but confirmation, 
being conformed to the image of God was always His will. In Romans, we read this earlier, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. So as you go forward this week, don't go thinking, man, Ken just put this heavy burden on me. I got another checklist. Now I have to worship. Right? Because first and foremost, this is not fundamentally about what we do or what we ought to do. This is about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. And then our response to that. If you don't feel like worshiping, don't focus on worship. Focus on Jesus. Learn His Word. Pray for a new heart. Surround yourself with people who are going to support you in that. And it will, we're promised, become the most natural response we can have. It's my prayer, and I'll pray this in just a minute as we finish, that our church would be a church that worships Christ with our whole being. Uh, the band can come up while I pray. Father God, you, you are indeed a great and an awesome and a magnificent God, and I thank you for our opportunities to worship you. Preaching's rough because I look at the message I give a church and I, I think, am I the person that I encourage people to be? I ask God that you would conform me to your image. I ask that you would transform and renew our church so that for all of us, God, we would reflect you in everything that we do, everything we think, everything we are. Let our lives bring glory to you. And I thank you that this is, in the end, what is best for us. But I pray, God, that we would do it because we love you and we thank you. pray this in the name of Jesus. So we will uh, take communion. So if you've not been with us before as we take communion, uh, communion is open to all believers of Jesus. Uh, you don't have to be just a member here at Oak City Church. It'll be offered out here in front. We offer the bread broken. It reflects Jesus' body broken for you. The juice, Jesus' blood that was shed for you. And so we, um, we encourage you to come and do this in remembrance of Him and in thankfulness for all that He's done for you.